are listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Carrie's on vacation this week, so I'm flying solo a bit, but I'm very excited to have as a guest Kim Vadreen, an editor and high school English teacher in Austin, Texas. She and I are old friends, and she's also one of the most interesting people to gab about books with, so I knew she'd be a natural for the show. We talk about the parallels and differences between her book club and her high school students, why some of the classics of American literature have become problematic for her book club, and why she loves the fun in dysfunctional family fiction. Last but not least, she describes the shocking thing she did to get her students to appreciate good writing. Welcome to Perks of Being a Book Lover. Today in the studio, I have my dear friend, Kim Vadreen, who is a former Louisvillian but now resides in Austin. We are longtime friends and book buddies, and she is visiting for the weekend, and I thought this was a perfect opportunity to talk to her about her bookish life now down in Austin, Texas. Hi, Kim. Hi, Amy. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So I was a high school English teacher in the 1900s, and then (laughs) I took about a 10-year break and worked for a nonprofit, which was kind of affiliated with education, but I worked from home, um, including even after we left Louisville and moved to Austin. The nonprofit was based in Louisville, but I continued to keep the job when we moved to Austin. And then several years ago, due to some corporate restructuring and other things, that opportunity ended and I went back to teaching. So in May, I finished my second year back in the classroom. So I know you were in a in a book club here in Louisville, and you're also in a book club in Austin. So how did you find that book club? Before I moved to Louisville and before I met you, um, I lived two years in Tennessee. So um, there was a little independent bookstore in Tennessee that had a book club, and I began going to those meetings. That was kind of my first experience with a pretty formal book club. They were very formal. They had a gavel, and they had a little bell you rang if you talked too long. And um, I was definitely the youngest person in that group, but we read some wonderful stuff that I'm really glad I read, probably not stuff I would have ever picked. And then when I moved to Louisville and I became affiliated with your book club, that gave me kind of a different uh, model for how to do a book club and what that could be like. And so then when I moved to Austin, I found out that there were a group of women who met in my neighborhood and I attended a few of those meetings, did not find them satisfactory in, at least in my life at that time. And so decided that I would just try to start a book club. I knew like 
two people. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe those two people I know like to read. Let me see if they might want to be in a book club. And so I invited a couple of people. And actually, those two people have not been in the book club since probably like the third month. But it just so happened that another book club in the neighborhood had recently sort of disbanded. A lot of those people just kind of migrated over to So you said you've been in several different book clubs, depending on where you lived. How has being in a book club affected your moves? I mean, did you sort of seek those those out when you moved to try to integrate into the community? What's your thoughts about that? Yes. So the first one, when we moved from Louisiana to Tennessee, it's a fairly small town that we lived in in Tennessee, but there was an independent bookstore. And that's how I found out about that book club was through through that bookstore. And I had kind of hoped that maybe I would make friends with some, it would be a way to expand my circle, my tribe, if you will. That's very trendy yes, to say now. Yes. But it really didn't work out that way. Um, as I said, I was a lot younger than them, which doesn't mean, I mean, I believe intergenerational friendships are super important, but it just, it I don't know, it didn't really work. And then when I moved here, I honestly don't even really remember how I found this book club. I guess just you and I met each other. I think that maybe we met at our children's school. Yeah. And so then maybe somehow Mm -hmm. we found out we both liked books and Mm -hmm. Englishy things. And then I did become friends. I feel like really close friends with everybody in this book club. And in fact, I still think one of the most touching gestures that a group of women have ever done for me is when I left here and everybody had, you know, sent um, a book to me as a parting gift. And um, it was lovely. It, it was a little overwhelming because I felt like I had a little bit of homework. Like oh. I felt like I needed to get back. Well, because it was such a kind and personal gesture that I thought, wow, these people have really put some thought into this. I have a lot of reading to do and get back with each person individually and say, here's what this book meant to me and so forth. But it was it was very, very touching. So I, I think that the friendships that came out of this group were very, very meaningful. And then when I started the group in Austin, it was rocky at the beginning. I'll say it like that. I I didn't really know where I fit in the group. I didn't really want to be the czar of the group, you know, and I didn't know that many people. Again, this other group just kind of joined ours and I didn't really know them. And so it was a little difficult at first, but I would say we've definitely all become, you know, close friends feel like it has become a community where we do things for each other. And when someone is ill or when someone has a concern, you know, we, we try to um, see to that, but it, it, it was not initially that way. It's just kind of grown into that. How does your group communicate? I know some groups, you know, have emails, some do it by Facebook. How does yours do it? We have never emailed. I don't think. Maybe the first month or two after I kind of started it, we emailed. But um, we do everything by Facebook. We sometimes create an event for the meeting or sometimes people will just post for the meeting. That's where we keep a log of all of our books. Um, I know you guys had talked on a previous episode about how you keep track of your books. Ours are in a pinned post so you can go back and see for every year all the books we read and so forth. That's really cool. A pinned post. So is that like a a little section on the side? It's a document that, it's a Word document, I think, but you can, Facebook allows you to pin something up at the top so you don't have to scroll all the way through. And it is 
it's cumulative. So starting in whatever, 2014 or something, I don't know how far back it goes, but, but you can go back and look at all the books we read. So does your group have any rules that go along with it? (laughs) Actually, no, no. So you can pick any genre of book. It can be any length. There's yes. And, and actually I remember when I was in the book club here with you, I, and again, this is, just a personal quirk, yes. but I remember being bothered by the fact that you could not pick a book that was not in paperback. I remember being kind of like annoyed by that because I wanted to read like some new stuff, mm-hmm. like really right. just like right out the box. Right. Spending money on a book is like the best money I ever spend. And so I couldn't figure out why in a group of people who all love books, why that expense seemed strange. I I totally get it. And that it always worked. And I ended up reading some wonderful things that probably I wouldn't have gone back to because they were older and I would have been more inclined to only read the contemporary stuff. So that was a good thing. Yeah, we really don't have any rules. I would say mostly people do pick fiction. I don't think anybody's ever picked a book of poetry. There have been a few nonfiction. You know, we read, uh, for example, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. We read that one and everybody enjoyed that. So we've read a little bit of nonfiction, but we're pretty heavily fiction, I would say. Do you want me to tell you about a weird thing that we did? Uh, Absolutely. Well, I, I shouldn't say weird. In December, we always have a Christmas party. And I actually, unfortunately, was ill and like really ill and could not go to that meeting. And I think they maybe had a few too many glasses of wine and came up with an (laughs) ill-conceived notion. And the notion was that for 2019, we would read all classics. And apparently among the people there, there was universal agreement that this was a wonderful idea. And all the books in 2019 would be classics. So that was kind of new for us like to set a theme or make a rule or something like that they they picked that night that the book for january would be the adventures of huckleberry finn usually we do try to pick a few months out i don't know if the february book was picked at that time but it was catcher in the rye then everybody january 1st embarked on classics Huck, Huck only year. Class, uh-huh. classics only year with great enthusiasm. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, I, I think many of us had read Huck Finn before. I'd read it several times. I was an English major, so I, I think I had to read it in high school, and then I read it in college, and then we read it again in grad school. But it had been 25 years, probably, since I had read it, and I never taught it. So everybody shows up at the January meeting, and we kind of start talking about the book and the experience of reading it and have you read it before, and etc. And it became kind of clear that most people had found it, I'll say, problematic, challenging. And I don't mean from a, like, difficulty, like, reading level kind of standpoint. It was just people found it difficult from a cultural or the lens of what we know about how we think race and so forth should be discussed now. So there was blatant racism in that yes. book. Yes. That reflects the time. Yes. Yes. But reading it from a uh, current perspective was problematic for a lot of your members. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because, you know, when I read it in my 20s or I guess also in my in in my teens in high school, I mean, I remember thinking like, wow, they are really saying that word a lot. Right. Like a lot, lot. And um, we're talking about the 
the N word. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I knew not to say that word, but I just thought they are saying that word so much. But I would just say to myself, you know, uh, that's how I mean, I still hear people around my hometown say that word. Right. Like at yes. that time in the in the late 80s. So um, I think the general consensus when we talked about that book in January of this year was that kind of the mental gymnastics that it took to constantly tell yourself, okay, that was then, this is now, people wouldn't behave this way now, and Huck can still be a good person, even though he, you know, it just became clear that most people felt that that was an onerous task uh, to constantly have to process how you feel about these characters and look at it in the light of the time. And it, it just was so heavy. It was a very heavy task, I think. That surprises me a little bit. It surprises me with a bunch of 40-something women. I wouldn't be as surprised about younger people feeling like that. I mean, you have these college classes that have trigger warnings now. I guess I've always looked at it as it's sort of like going back in a time machine. If you look at it from that perspective, you're really, yes, all those things that he's saying are horrible, but that's what that time was was like. What was your thoughts about it? Did you f- find it difficult as well? So I remember when I was in my, in, in college when I read it, when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. I probably read it much more closely than I did in high school. I think in high school, it was just like, get through it. But in college, I remember thinking it was so funny, like Uh laugh out loud funny. There Uh were things about it that I thought were so hilarious. And that was definitely lost when I read it this time. I'm shocked when I encountered that word. Yeah. And I don't think I was then. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew it was, like I said, I knew it was not a word that we should say, Mm -hmm. but it, it is shocking to read a book now that uses that word so many times. And then the fact that it was cast as humor and it uses that word, Mm -hmm. I think really complicated things for me personally. I guess I shouldn't speak for everybody in the book club other than to say that I think everybody just felt like it was, it was rough. So then it was February and it was time to discuss Catcher in the Rye. Um, And I had actually reread Catcher in the Rye maybe like, Five or six years ago, mm-hmm. I guess. I think I read it last year. I reread it last I year. I think you did. I think yeah, you, I, I think remember I you telling me. This, yeah. At the book club meeting, there was a similar kind of thing, obviously not about race, but just about reading that book and the, the privilege that Holden Caulfield has. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I know culturally now we talk a lot about white privilege. Right. And I guess... While the experience in terms of race and so forth from that book to Huck Finn was really different, it also came off as very hard to read. It was not enjoyable. Everybody in the book club felt like it was unpleasant. And we talked a lot about, is it because when we all read it initially, like, you know, whatever, in our teens, we felt like Holden, and now we all feel like Holden's parents, right? Like, and so is that what it is? Like, is that why he's so awful to us? But um, basically, the, uh, the upshot of those two months of reading the classics was, at the end of that meeting, everybody, I don't really know how the discussion broke out, but, you know, basically everybody said, 
God, I don't want to do this anymore. And then the next, and then like maybe they just whispered it to the yes. person next to them, and that yes. person was like, God, me either. I wish we didn't have to read the classics. And then somebody across the room overheard that and said, Me too. These classics are awful. Why are we doing this? And what happened at the meeting was we just decided like, Ugh, nobody is enjoying this at all. Let's don't do it anymore. And so we didn't. We abandoned, and we had a we had a lot of fun poking fun at ourselves for you know here we are a bunch of like so-called book lovers and we can't even get through three months of classic <laughs> literary towering literary classics but yeah we couldn't <laughs> so do you think we should just not read the classics anymore or do you think it was beca- partly because that's all you were going to read do you, do you know what i'm saying yes, like yes um i do think two months back to back is probably a lot in thinking about it i was thinking about what we do to kids in high school where we have them read, you know, a steady diet of so-called classics. And again, people are moving away from that, but definitely that was what you did for a while. And I think it would just be awful (laughs) to go straight Mm -hmm. from Huck Finn to Catcher in the Rye to whatever Atlas Shrugged to whatever is, you know, whatever is next. I think that would be a lot. Yeah. So maybe alternating every now and then we read a classic and so forth. But I think two months of it was back to back was just too much. And a year, I don't don't think any of us would have survived a year, honestly. (laughs) So in ours, we do a classic once a year. And it's usually Carrie or I who pick it because we both just think, you know, you should revisit them on occasion. But I will say when it's me who's picking it, I try to be a little careful about what I pick. I think I picked A Tree Grows in Brooklyn last year or the year before. Everybody loved that one. Or we did Rebecca by mm-hmm. Daphne mm-hmm. du Maulier. Everybody loved that one. I know we did I Capture the Castle when I yeah. was in that group. And yes. that's a book I would have never picked yeah. up or never read. And I loved it so much. So maybe it kind of depends on the classic as well. It might. Yes. It, I, and Although I, I, Mark Twain. I mean, Mark Twain is... A canon of the American Sure, of American and I would say there's so. probably some Mark Twain you could read that maybe would not have caused the reaction that it right. caused in, in people. And I'm not saying Huck Finn is a bad book, and I'm not saying Catcher in the Rye is a bad book. Please understand that. I just think for our particular group at our particular time, two months in a row, it was just, right. it, it wasn't working. Right. So yeah. what books have been most successful in your group? Most of the books that I have chosen have not been very successful. <laughs> what do you think the common ingredient is in the ones that you pick that make them not successful? I don't know. Like, we give a little prize every year for, like, yes. the but I've never won the prize. Oh. I'm very sad. No, not really. I don't know. There's one other woman in our book club who we also give a prize for the worst book, and I think she's won it, like, three times in a row. So mine are not the most loathed, but they're close. They're runners uh, they're, they're a close second. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know. I One time I picked a book about the UT Tower shootings. It was a yes. fictionalized account of Monday, the Monday. Day. Yes, Monday, okay, Monday. Yes. Um, and I thought people would really like that. Yeah. Because, but we all live in Austin, and you know that's such a a cultural touchstone in Austin. People talk about that, that was one day of the first as a mass yeah. shooting incident in the night. It was in the nineteen sixty nine. Sixty nine. Sixty nine. From the bell tower at the University of Texas. Right. Anyway, so I thought everybody would really like that one, and no, they didn't. What didn't they like about it? 
Do you remember? I don't really remember. I think it, it wasn't the subject matter so much. Maybe they just didn't find the story very engaging. Uh-huh. Uh, when I started the book club, you know, all those years ago, I picked the first two books because we didn't really have a system for how to start things. And the first book we read, the first ever, was Gone Girl. And it mm-hmm. was a really, it was very new at that time. And then the second one was Wild. Cheryl mm-hmm. Strait. Yes. And you and I had yes. seen her yes. like maybe a few months before at Texas Book Festival. And I think those two were pretty well received. Um, they were very engaging books. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody really enjoyed those. Um, so I take credit for those two picks as having been <laughs> widely hailed as successful. But I would say fiction, um, usually with a female uh, like, for example, we just read Eleanor Oliphant is completely yes. fine. And we loved that one. When we read Where'd You Go, Bernadette, I think everybody really enjoyed that one. So I would say usually one that has a slightly comic, and by comic, I don't mean funny, but someone who in, in whom maybe we can see our own foibles. Those have been pretty successful. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your work as high mm-hmm. school English teacher. Mm -hmm. So what kind of books do you have them read? Um, So I'm on a team. And so when I came onto that team two years ago, the books that they had been teaching for a while were um, Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, Things Fall Apart by Mm -hmm. Chinua Achebe, and a selection of war books that would be Hiroshima and The Things They Carried and... All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. And then we would kind of jigsaw the kids and they could pick which one of mm-hmm. those they wanted. And and so then this past year, I opted out of the war books and began the year with Joy Luck Club and ended the year with Things Fall Apart. Right now, the book I am currently reading, which is a reread for me, but I'm reading it now with an eye toward teaching it, so that's a little different, is Khalid Hosani's mm-hmm. A Thousand Splendid Sons. Okay. And I'm hoping to replace Joy Luck Club with that book. And so we will probably just do, as a whole class, two novels this Mm -hmm. year. The kids do independent reading, and um, we do a lot of, you know, kind of an excerpt from this. Not because I think everybody needs to read an excerpt from blank quite so much, but because we use it as a writing tool. Let's look at how Hemingway wrote this sentence or this passage, and let's try to emulate that as writers. What can we learn about what good writing looks like from this? Mm-hmm. So in terms of this, the need for an entire story arc, we kind of meet that with like those two novels, and then otherwise we examine those what we call mentor texts with an eye toward how they can inform us as writers about choices. So these these two novels that your class reads, that's a shared reading just as a book club is yes. a shared reading. So do you see any parallels between those two groups on, on how... So I'll, let me go back to talking about my book club for just a minute, and then I'll talk to you about the, my classroom, because this was a kind of an interesting and eye-opening experience for me. The The friend that I mentioned earlier who has gotten the award for, like, worst book several mm-hmm. years in a row, she had the idea maybe three or four years ago that she would choose Chinua Chabi's Things Fall Apart 
for our book club. And I had read it and she was kind of just talking to me and I said, yeah, that's a great book. I think that's a great choice. So she picked it. And um, I think most of the people in the book club had not ever read it, maybe weren't especially even familiar with him as a writer or his reputation and so forth. Everybody hated it, like hated okay. it, really, really, really hated it. Okay. So You can't emphasize um, that enough, right, right. how much they hated right. it. So then last year, when it came time to teach it, my most recent experience with it had been do, doing it with the book club. And so I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to go over really. This is going to be terrible. Like a lead balloon. Yes. But the team that I'm a part of had been teaching it for several years, and they had a lot of contextualizing activities that went along with it and how you build different lenses through which to examine different aspects of the novel and so forth. And the students who really could not bear any less similarity to uh, Okonkwo or the people in the novel loved that book. They really responded to it. They really enjoyed it. You know, we examined it through the looking at him as a tragic hero and comparing him to other tragic heroes that they had read about or that we knew in movies. Can we pause just a second? Can you give just a little synopsis of what that book is about? For someone who hasn't, it might help. Yes. Um, So it's basically a tribe kind of untouched by, I think they're in what is now Nigeria. Okay. And they've kind of been untouched by outsiders. Okay. And um, they have their own customs and their society uh, has a structure and it's a working structure, albeit maybe for us there are things about it that are shocking. And the white man comes in. Missionaries actually kind of come in. I guess people have compared it to Barbara Kingsolver's Poisonwood Bible. I was just Bible. thinking that. that yes. That's what that reminds um, me of. And so it is about the the whole things fall apart is kind of about the clash of this culture that um, has been in place and has worked for a number of years kind of crashing into the missionaries culture and how the missionaries see the native people and how the native people see the missionaries and how it's really to both of their detriment that they try to fix each other. So the kids really loved it. And, you know, we talked about different tragic heroes and they, uh, my students are obsessed with the office. So we had lots of comparisons between like Michael Scott and Okonkwo. And so it really, really seemed to come alive for them. Mm -hmm. And it made me think how different that experience could have been maybe in the book club Mm -hmm. if we had done some of those illuminating texts, like things that would help you to think about it. Not that everybody in the group is not a good thinker or a good reader, but I think that maybe the experience would have been different if we could have said, hey, just alongside this, why don't you watch... Chimamanda Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story, which is a, TED, a really famous TED Talk. And then think about this novel in the light of that. And I think that that makes it a different experience. But of course, I'm the only one in our group who is a teacher. And I don't want to turn book club into no. a right. classroom. Right. So most recently, we read this little book that I had picked, kind of a novella. And I kind of knew, like, people are probably not really going to like this. But I had listened to an episode of a podcast, which is what made me choose the book. And so at the meeting, I did 
kind of insists that we were going to listen to this podcast yeah. because I thought, well, A, it's enjoyable and engaging, but B, it would maybe prompt a different way of thinking about the book we had just read. And w- before we started the meeting, everybody was like pouring wine and most people were like, uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I didn't really let, you know, Kim strikes again. I didn't, <laughs> didn't really love that one. And I was like, okay, but wait until you hear the podcast. And so by the end of the meeting, I wouldn't say everybody was like in love with the book, but universally people said, I'm really glad I read that book. Yeah. Like, I'm glad that I read it. And it has some really interesting ideas. Again, I think that's what is a little bit of a challenge is how you, you want to get the most that you can out of a book, but you also don't want to turn it into a classroom. Right. So how to navigate that. And we certainly have not figured it out. So I don't really know, but I think that definitely building in support for for like contextualizing a book or an, we call them in the classroom illuminating text, like a, another text that will help you look at some particular aspect of this book in a way that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before can be super, super helpful. So that is what made things fall apart. I think a different experience for my students. And in fact, the second year that I've been back in the classroom, it was I mean, it went over gangbusters. It was it was like their favorite thing that we did all year. They loved it. That's amazing. And of course, I went back and taunted the book club like, oh, guess what? Literary ladies, <laughs> a bunch of 15-year-olds <laughs> loved this book that you hated. And they have no reason to like it whatsoever. Yeah. So, I think it's especially helpful for books that are about cultures that are completely foreign to you or situations that are completely foreign to the lives of people in your group. There's been a couple of books that we have done this year. And when I was reading them, I found them difficult in different aspects. One of them was a, a book called Ali and Nino um, that was written back in the 30s. And it's a it's set in a country, Kazakhstan, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's on the border of Turkey and Iran's on the other side. And as you're reading the book, it's so much of it is about history, but it's a part of the world we don't really learn a lot about. And I was having a difficult time with the book. And what I finally had to do was actually, for one, look at a map to figure out where this country was because they're referring to, you know, towns in other countries. So once I figured out where it was... And then the other thing I had to do, it talks a lot about sort of the clash between Islam and Christianity in that area. And they talk about Sunnis and Shias. Now, ideally, I would already know what the difference between a Sunni and Shia Muslim is, but I do not. But I looked it up because otherwise the book doesn't necessarily resonate with you. So I had to look up the difference between those things. So before we had the book club, I posted a couple of links and I... And, and I said, this will really help you get through the book. If you can understand these very simple things, the book will make a lot m- more sense to you. So I don't know that people came away loving that book, but I do think for the people who did look up those links, it did help illuminate sure, them. Sure. The other one was a book, you know, it was a thriller and it was a book that I would say wasn't very well written, but it was an example of domestic noir if listeners know what film noir is, but it's sort of like dark, cynical, seedy. It was in films a lot. Well, domestic noir is is that. They're thrillers, but usually it's based around women and marriage and 
um, that kind of thing. And so even though the book wasn't particularly great, we talked a lot about domestic noir and how this book sort of fit into that. And it really ended up being a great discussion, even though it was a book everybody was kind of giving thumbs down to as far as like quality wise. So yeah, I totally agree with you about that. Some books don't need it. Like Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Right. Right. You can enjoy that. But I agree with you that many others, and it's not to say they're lesser books or they're not worth reading or whatever. Yes, often the building out that the the cultural significance or the time period or the what came before it, I think is really, really important. What do you do with your students to make that shared reading meaningful? Do you do the same thing with both books? Not the same thing. I'll be honest, we spend probably most of our time looking at the the way that the books are written. Probably we, and maybe this is a challenge for me, we probably could spend more time talking about the quote-unquote meaning and mm-hmm. how the meaning is made. And we, t- we touch on that. I mean, we talk about it some, but not to the degree that we focus on because my my real push is for them to be I want them to be writers. And so how you take a beautiful and elegantly crafted sentence that conveys, you know, setting or theme or whatever and with subtlety and nuance and and then try to do that yourself. Well, you're talking about you want your students to be writers and you want them to be able to make um well crafted sentences. I know that you did something in your class this year that some might think was quite shocking that your <laughs> students thought was really cool. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So in October, I went to my 30th class reunion and I was struck by the fact that I was one of the few people at the class reunion who did not have any tattoos or at least that you could see. Mm-hmm. And so as I was driving home, I was thinking about school. You know, one of the things I really want the kids to be able to do is find an elegant sentence and a sentence that becomes something that can almost, you can almost internalize and it can become a kind of a mantra. I hate to use that word because it's trotted out maybe too often, but something that is informing to your soul, right? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, how can I get them to kind of like start focusing on, they they are pretty good at pointing out like, oh, here's a beautiful sentence with a simile. Here's a beautiful sentence with a metaphor. Here's a, this is, you know, Zugma or whatever. So we talk about some of those, but I really wanted them to develop an eye for becoming a collector of you know, those like bumper sticker worthy kinds of Mm -hmm. things or t-shirt worthy kinds of things. So I was just driving and thinking and um, I came up with this idea that I would tell the kids that I was going to put a bucket in the room and all year when they were reading, whether it was something we were reading together or whether it was something they were reading independently, if they found a line that was beautiful and elegant and communicated something beyond the actual literal context of the book, that I wanted them to submit it to this bucket. And at the end of the year, I would choose, I'd go through all of them and I would choose five that I would not be opposed to having as a tattoo on my body. And then I would let them vote from among those five And I would actually get the tattoo before the end of the school year. They were 
pretty scandalized by this when I first brought it up. <laughs> As was um, I when you first started. Yeah, and I mean, it. I should probably say, like, I'm a teacher. I wear a dress and heels to school every single day, every single day. So I, I probably come across as fairly square and stodgy and formal. Yeah. So they were pretty surprised, but very intrigued. And so it took a little while for it to get legs. Like, the bucket only had a few things in it for, for a while. And then it kind of picked up a little and I would remind them every so often, you know. And so at probably around May 15th, I took all of them out and I pulled five. Like one was a quote from Lonesome Dove, um, which only a single, a, a student had read that independently. Um, and Lonesome Dove is one of my all time, I know your book yes, club I read it. It's Lonesome one of Dove. my all time favorites. Mm-hmm. And so I really kind of secretly wanted that one to win. Two of the quotes were from poems that we had read Mm -hmm. as an entire class. Uh, I have them all on a sheet in my room. But anyway, I put those five on a Google form as a ballot and sent it out. And um, the kids voted. And the one that they selected, I had to like hurriedly find somebody to tattoo it so that they would be able to see it before the end of the school year. And I think that was what they were really shocked that I actually went through with yeah. it. And so when I came back, it was after the weekend when I came back on Monday, we only had like two or three days of school left. And uh, I, I had written on the board, ask me if you want to see my tattoo. Cause I didn't want to, you know, I was like, Oh, Oh, look, everybody look at me. Wow. I did this thing. So I was just like, ask if you want to see it. Um, Cause it's kind of at the top of my back and my hair's long or whatever. And so that was the moment when they would ask and, you know, I would show it, you could hear like an audible gasp, like she did, she really did it. She really did that. So, so. you got the vote for the coolest high school English I, teacher. I ever. don't know. And I mean, I didn't tell anybody about it, but honestly, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like go bragging about it to anybody, but I thought thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, I'm planning to do it again this year. And I'm very happy with the line that ended up winning. But again, because I reserved the right to choose the top five, I really would have, you know, I, I would have been happy with anything, uh, any of those five. A few of the submissions, no, they were not good. They were like an entire paragraph <laughs> or they were, you know, silly. But yeah, um, once I narrowed it down to those five, then I would have really been satisfied with whatever would have won out of those. So one last question before we end this section. What do you think is more important, the first line of the book or the last line? I think the first line because I will never get to the last line if I don't have a good first First line. line. I do this really cheesy like teacher thing at the beginning of the year. I have this whole... It's called Great Beginnings, where I have pulled the first line from many, many, many books, and I flash them up on the screen, and I do this whole, like, look at these great beginnings to these books. You need a great beginning for your school year, you know, like that kind of thing. (laughs) But um, we end up spending some time talking about those great beginnings and how you what why are these beginnings better than it was a dark and stormy night? Like, you know, what makes these compelling. Like I remember the first line from I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith and it's I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. Yes. And I always that line has stuck with me. Like it is such the the juxtaposition of writing in the kitchen sink and why are you sitting in the kitchen sink um, is really compelling. I think the first line for me is always more important. We could just keep on talking and talking through the dream. But we are going to stop right here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading right now. Back. 
here with Kim Vadreen, and we are going to talk about what we are currently reading. So what's on your nightstand, Kim? So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm rereading A Thousand Splendid Suns. Mm -hmm. Next up is a book called The Serpent King, which is on the summer reading list for my students. And it's one of the ones I haven't read. Before I picked up A Thousand Splendid Suns, I had just finished Tara Westover's Educated. I want to read that. It's wonderful. Uh, similar to The Glass Castle, which I very yes. much enjoyed. Different, but also uh, similar. Right before that, I had read, a, I had never read an Agatha Christie book in my mm -hmm. whole life. And to be honest, I'm not a big mystery. Um, that's not really my genre. Mystery and science fiction are probably the two genres I kind of avoid. But it was a book that someone chose. Mm -hmm. So uh, somebody in the book club. And it's the one called And Then There, there Were, were None. none. Uh -huh. So I, I read that, and then I read Educated, and then I've picked up A Thousand Splendid Sons, and um, I have The Serpent King coming up. So if I remember correctly, you really like a dysfunctional family memoir. Is that correct? Yes, I would say I do. I really like a dysfunctional fictional family. Yeah. You know, I've, you know the, the, the key word in dysfunctional is fun. <laughs> So <laughs> I really like those. In fact, you and I, I remember when we first became friends, the book that we disagreed about. And I remember thinking, how can I love Amy if she does not love this book? Was that the Wally Lamb book? Yes. She's Come Undone. Yes, I did not like and that And I loved that book so much. And I remember you were saying, you were like, she's so dysfunctional. And I was like, yes, I know. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> I maybe need to revisit it. I remember not liking it, but I can't tell you why. I read it a long, long time ago. I just remember hating that book. And I, I mean, it remains still so to this one day. One of your favorites. So, one of my all-time favorites. I did like his one about the twins. Mm -hmm. I know this and much yes, is true. I did like that one quite a bit. Yeah. I just finished a book, and it's a new release. It came out in March, and I am not much of a reader of brand new books that come out. I like, I like to wait a little while to see if really... The hype is worth it. Mm -hmm. But I heard an interview with the author on Terry Gross's Fresh Air. The name of the book is called Maybe You Should Talk With Someone by Lori Gottlieb. And it is a memoir as well. She's a therapist and she goes to see a therapist. And it's about therapy in general. She was engaged and her fiancé sort of broke up with her out of the blue. And she couldn't seem to get past it and was sort of treading water. She was kind of stuck in place. And so a friend of hers said, well, maybe you need to get some therapy yourself. <laughs> and so she found someone. And the book is, it's about her practice and some of the patients that she sees, but also her seeing her therapist. Mm -hmm. And it's all sort of interwoven together. And, you know, she, she has a patient who is really just a jerk but you realize that there that there's a reason why he's acting like that there's some sadness there that's causing him to be such a jerk and there's another woman who is in her 70s and she comes in and says I've had a horrible life and if I don't feel any better in a year I'm going to kill myself but she wants that year to try to make her life better so anyway there were just interesting cases that she went through it was really almost like a self-help book that was disguised as a memoir oh yeah because you got all kinds of great little like nuggets of wisdom in here and the thing is i i don't read self-help books i don't i don't know they're just kind of not my thing but i so enjoyed this and there were so many things that i could relate to my own life and i thought oh so when i do that maybe what i'm really 
doing is X, Y, or Z, you know, things that I had never really thought about. So I, this is a five star book for me and I give five stars hardly ever. Right. And I just really love this book. I'm thinking I, I had got it from the library. I'm thinking about buying my own copy and maybe like forcing it into the hands of everybody I know, <laughs> because I really think everybody could read it and, and get some great wisdom out of it of just how not to get in your own way. And, and everybody does it about something or other. I mean, everybody has issues sometimes. Right. And, and one of the nice things about it too was that so you might think, well, a therapist, they're a therapist, therefore they have no personal problems ever. Just like people would think, oh, well, a doctor must only have healthy habits all the time. Right. Like, that's just not right. the case. And so it was kind of interesting to to see her analyze her own issues and being able to open up about that. Yeah, so. it sounds great. Yeah. I th- in fact, I think I texted you mm-hmm. that I thought you would totally love that yeah, book. Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to put that one on my list. You're going to have to put that one on your list. We're going to take another little break, and when we come back, we're going to do Kim's Top 5. We're back in the studio with Kim, and we're going to do our Top 5. So my first question for you, Kim, is now that you live in Austin, what is the top attraction that you think someone should visit in Austin if they get a chance to go? All right, so there's kind of two parts to my answer. If if you can come on a specific day or weekend, definitely hands down my top attraction would be the Texas Book Festival, which is generally the last weekend in October. And it's completely free. It is where Amy and I saw Cheryl Strayed many yes. years ago. We've seen Jeffrey Tubin. Yes. We've seen Kevin Kwan. Uh, Chris Bojalian, um, Amor Tolls, uh-huh. Maria Simple. Yes. Um, so, so many. Yeah. So, so many. totally free. Lots of exposure to new books. I remember when we sat and heard Kevin Kwan, we didn't have any idea what Crazy Rich Asians was. Like, he was just some guy talking I mean, about this book. it had come out, but it... Yeah, but there was yeah. no... It was nothing like what it is yes. now. So, yes, I would say um, that for sure, those two days toward the end of October, and I think it's usually the last weekend, Saturday and Sunday, um, hands down, cannot miss. If you can't come for that weekend, probably the thing that I would suggest is this quirky, you know, Austin has this unofficial motto, keep Austin weird. So a very quirky little thing is um, called Cathedral of Junk. And it is in the backyard of a man named Vince. I don't even know his last name. And it's kind of in a, it's in a neighborhood. So I think he does not get along with his neighbors very well at all anymore because basically he has built something that is a cross between like a tree house and a monument and an art piece and is this something like if you Google, like you can get directions to? Or yes, how? yes. Okay. And he, he does like for you to call ahead and okay. tell him that you're coming. <laughs> so I have his phone number, but you can you can get it online, um, <laughs> Cathedral of Junk. And he basically just collects junk and he has made this gigantic backyard structure out of all the junk and it has multiple levels and you can climb is there a charge to go see it he has a little thing out where it's like if you would like to make a donation but mostly i think he likes donations of junk (laughs) because then you know that furthers his art yes yeah it's a it's a super quirky thing but um it's fascinating 
That's what I'll say. Wow. And I have been to Austin many times to come visit you, and you've never taken me to the Cathedral of Well, it is up for the next visit. It's up for the next visit. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. I know that you are a huge movie buff. So this is a two-part question. First of all, candy or popcorn when you go to the movie theater? Candy. I love popcorn, but um, I like it to have those little flavorings and yes. not all the theaters have those, yes. you know, the little Parmesan cheese. So you're cheese. just going to dump it and go to candy if they don't have that. Yep. Yep. Candy. Okay. For sure. So then my second part of the question is you are around teenagers all year long being a high school English teacher. So what is your top teen movie? So Easy A is probably my top teen movie. I love it for a number of reasons. I I like it because it is kind of a recreation of the Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. I love the moxie that the main character possesses. She is, for me, a little reminiscent, a more modern and updated version of my one of my favorite ever, ever, ever movie characters, Rizzo from Greece. So I think she's a little that character, but updated for now. And so, yeah, I would say hands down, my favorite teen movie is Easy A. I would recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. And that has Emma Stone in it. And that's the first thing I think I ever saw her in. It may be the first thing I ever saw her in, too. And she was really great. Loved it. I think we saw it together. Yeah. Okay. So question number three is... What would be your top book that you would like to see made into a film and who would you cast in the main roles? So, I, you know, I'm a high school teacher, but before I went back to teaching, my younger daughter, who is 18, um, just graduated from high school, she read this book that she said, Mom, you have to read this. This was probably five years ago. And it was called Eleanor and Park. And mm-hmm. I had never heard of Rainbow Rowell. I didn't know anything about Fangirl or any of the other books that I think came before Eleanor and Park. So I read it and absolutely fell in love with those two characters. And you told me about that book and I read it and loved it. And I've recommended it to so many students since I've been back in the classroom. And I've never had a kid come back and say, meh, like it is universally loved. And so I follow her on Twitter and there's quite the Twitter storm periodically about why isn't this being made into a movie? Is it going to be made into a movie? Are you going to write a sequel? Who who would you want to play the characters if you were going to create a movie? You know, and I would love to see that one made into a movie. The only thing is I feel like and I mean, I, y'all have talked about this before on the podcast. It's hard once it's been made into a movie to ever not see it in your own head the way it existed before, right? So while I would love to see it made into a movie, I love the way it exists in my head right now. And so when I think of who I would want to play Eleanor in particular, I am concerned that in the Hollywood version, she would be much more perfect than she exists in my head. And I want her to be exactly like she is in my head, which is very imperfect. Right. That's much more relatable. Yes. She's Mm -hmm. much more relatable Mm -hmm. that way. And I don't want her, you know, beautified for Hollywood. So I don't really want to pick anybody part of partially because if I say the name of an actress after what I just said, it's going to be, I don't think you're beautiful. And that's not the truth. I just want her to still exist. The thing that made her so relatable was the fact that she was not the most attractive girl in the room. And I love that because I never have been right. Mm -hmm. So, so that, and I think that's what makes it meaningful for my students Mm who are all the time struggling with their, how they look and, Mm -hmm. you know, does this look weird? And, you know, trying to be comfortable in your own skin. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't want to. I don't want to pick all actors. Right, or, all yeah. right. Well, I'm. I have an answer to this one, and I was just looking through books that I've read like in the past year, and one that I think would make a really good movie series that they haven't done yet is Tana French's Dublin Squad books. Um, the first one was called In the Woods. They're really good sort of police procedurals, which I don't normally read, but I I'd heard from several people that they were very good. So In the Woods is about a, a girl who's found dead in, at an archaeological dig site right outside Dublin. And it's the same town where the main character grew up and something very tragic happened to him growing up in that town. So there are two police officers who, who are the detectives. Rob Ryan and Cassie Maddox. So I was trying to think of Irish actors who could play those roles because I kind of hate it when they like stick an American actor mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. make them have a Irish accent yeah, or vice yeah. versa. It's like there's plenty of Irish actors. Why not right. just pick one of those? So for Cassie Maddox, I was thinking of probably going to say her name wrong. Shorsha Ronan. Mm-hmm. She was the one who was in Brooklyn yes. in Lady Bird. Yes. But she is Irish and she would be perfect for that role. And then for Rob Ryan, I would put Alan Leach. And I don't know if People know who he is, but if you ever watch Downton Abbey, he played Tom Branson, who is the chauffeur who later marries Lady Sybil. He was also in um, Bohemian Rhapsody as Freddie Mercury's sort of lecherous manager. Okay. So um, that's who I would pick for those two roles, and I hope that they will be listening to me and make that movie soon. (laughs) So my fourth question to you is, you're actually the first person who ever introduced me to podcasts. I had never listened to one, and you kept saying, you have got to listen to Serial. This was years ago when the first Serial came out, and it was amazing. And so then I've listened to podcasts ever since. So my question to you is, what is your top podcast that you're listening to right now? The one that I just finished, which I would highly recommend, is called The Shrink Next Door. Okay. And it's more like a mini series. I mean, it's, okay. it's not, a, there, there, there's a certain number of episodes right. and then it was canned and that's it. Right. Speaking of therapy, it's a fascinating true story about, um, we'll just say, therapy gone bad. Um, it is a true story? Is this like true, true crime? It's not really cr- crime per oh, okay. se, but true. Uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating. It was recommended to me by my brother-in-law, and then my daughter and I listened to it when we were traveling to her college orientation and thought it was great. The, just real fast, the other one I'll say, mm-hmm. which is also kind of a mini series, which is new to me, when my daughter and I were on that trip, she was asking me some questions about um, the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal, yes. and I was trying to go back in my memory to the early 90s and remember some of the details surrounding that, and I was having trouble, so I thought just for my own satisfaction, I'm going to see if I can brush up on that because I don't remember a lot. Like my daughter was saying, why was it such a big, I don't understand why they make such a big deal. Politicians do things, you know. So I was trying to remember all of the stuff surrounding it. And I found a podcast. The The Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing is actually season two. It's called Slow Burn. Okay, I've heard it's of that It's produced by Slate. Okay. And the first season is about Watergate. So okay. the second season is all about that Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing. And it is fascinating. So those two, I would highly recommend. They're not like ongoing, you know, but for ongoing, This American Life is always my okay. all-time go-to. But um, those two I would recommend if for just like if you're on a vacation drive this summer and you just need yeah. to kill some hours, both of those. Great recommendations. Okay, final question. You've been away from Louisville for about eight years now, I believe. We miss you terribly. But what is the <laughs> what is your top thing you miss about Louisville? 
I guess I would say the the whole Kentucky Derby culture thing is really, really, really fun. Um, and I remember when I moved here, like not knowing that there were, you know, like if you're a teacher, you mark the year in two ways. There's a, a new year starts always in August. And then there's Roman calendar new year that starts yes. in January. Yes. Right. And I didn't really know that here there's also the like the derby year like yeah. starts in mid-April. And yeah. I remember somebody telling me the rule that you have to have your flowers in the ground by like thunder over Louisville, like your your flowers have to be planted by then. And so I was like, wow, there's this weird thing about how people mark time here that is totally new to me and no other place I had lived. I mean, I guess in Louisiana, there's Mardi Gras. Yes. But even that, as big as it is and as much fun as it is, I don't think there's all the sort of pomp and circumstance in Mm -hmm. the same way that there is about the Derby. And I've really missed that. I I just thought everything about it was fun and fantastic. And we now in Austin, we have a Derby party every year and it's really fun and we enjoy it. But I think being here and experiencing that, you know, the serving the food in the school cafeteria, the week of Derby, they're serving like typical Louisvillian food. It's just such a cool, cool thing. So I'd say that's probably what I miss most. If you're not from Louisville or have never lived there and haven't been to any of those activities, you definitely should come check it out sometime. It's a two-week party, and it's it's a lot of fun. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. It's been great. We could just talk forever, but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come to an end. So thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today. We're under construction and currently switching sites for our webpage. But for now, for show notes for any episode, you can find them at our current blog site. The address is a little long to say, but you can find it on our Facebook page or by Googling Perks of Being a Book Lover. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. And if you are a member of a book club or are sharing reading in some way and would like to be a guest, please contact us at any of these sites as well. You can also leave a message on our Perks line at 502-509-7736. We always want to hear from fellow readers. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Podbean, and SoundCloud.